If you're looking to buy or sell pre-IPO stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. Since 2009, SharesPost has transacted more than $4 billion in the top private tech companies. Proven, trustworthy, secure. Visit us at SharesPost.com. Coming up on Equity, Coinbase makes a big acquisition, Netflix soars on earnings, a chat platform for gamers raises a lot of money, and we've got more details on the next crop of IPOs. Welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Katie Roof. My colleague Matthew Lindley is off today. We're joined by Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief Alex Wilhelm. Hello. And our special guest today is Mike Jones, who's the CEO of Science, an incubator and venture fund in Los Angeles. Thanks for having me. You're Thanks for first, joining. He's the first LA person on the show, right? No, last week we had Kara Norman. Oh, who that's right. Upright. Come oh. on, Alex. Was I here? I was here for that entire <laughs> she episode. She originally was New York, and then she moved to LA. I'm so. pretty sure we've had other LA people. Maybe they snuck in. Uh, anyways, it's good to have some uh, California we're, diversity we're, on the show. We're allowing SoCal on the on the show. I used to live in SoCal uh, for actually six years of my life, really? so I, I can tolerate Los Angeles. All right. Well, as long as it's not Anaheim, we're in good shape. Uh, but first up this week is a really big deal in the crypto space, everyone's favorite thing to talk about. Uh, Coinbase, which everyone knows by name, has bought Earn.com, which people might not. But Earn.com has a bit of a history to it because it wasn't always called that. It was originally or previously 21.co. Uh, and it did some other things as well involving uh, like hardware miners. And also it was a big Bitcoin mining operation uh, previously. And so the deal was a bit of a surprise. It came out of, um, I want to say, left field for me. And the scale of the transaction was fascinating. So according to Recode, it's about a $100 million deal. Crunchbase has it down to about 120 And it's cash and stock and some crypto thrown in. So quite a large deal for Coinbase, um, especially because, and I don't mean to be rude, but I kind of do, um, I don't think Earn.com was actually worth that as a corporation itself, but there's general consensus that the deal was done is to bring the CEO of Earn, uh, Balaji Srinivasan, exactly. Katie's much better with the name there, into Coinbase as the CTO. So I'm kind of curious, what's our general sentiment about this, and do we think it was smart? Well, what, what Earn was doing- I'm still doing, trying to figure out what Earn does. So well, I yeah, can tell explain. you what Earn is doing. Right? So Earn was like, imagine uh, like LinkedIn in-mails, where you would get paid um, to talk to somebody. So you could put a profile on Earn and say, like, for instance, I'm an active crypto investor, and then an ICO that was trying to sell you tokens could actually pay you in tokens in order to communicate with them. And can, so they, I, can I set this yeah. up so that my PR pitches go through here so I can make money off of replying to you this? could. <laughs> you absolutely could. I don't think you can do that ethically, though. <laughs> fine, fine. But it was kind of like LinkedIn emails you get paid to receive, but it was, I mean, I would argue the quality wasn't superior. And I know that they were thinking about doing something big in the token space because we talked to them quite a bit. So when the news came out, we're like, oh, I guess they're not doing that plan. <laughs> I guess they're now on a whole different path. That's that's fascinating. But and, the, and they raised Katie. a lot of money, and so it wasn't actually a good outcome at all. But it, 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 they saved face for Andreessen Horowitz. It uh, was roughly flat. So according to Crunchbase, 21.co, the preceding effort of this corporate entity that had different names, raised $121.1 million across two rounds. Most recently in uh, 2015, they raised 116. So, so the, selling for a little less than you raised is considered bad l- in me, the world of venture capital, so for those of you who don't know. They were one of the first big raises around crypto miners 
and I can't verify this, but I think you could assume that if people had invested a lot of money way back then in mining equipment and that mined a lot of Bitcoin, I would imagine those individuals might have received some of those Bitcoins through that process. So I think all in all, I think the investors probably did extremely well with this, even though it might look like the Coinbase acquisition doesn't uh, make everyone grossed up off the investment amount. But if they got Bitcoin distributions from that far back, like when was that first round done? I mean, the first round, their Series A was back in 13. So 2000- if you were mining in 13 and they distributed those Bitcoins, everyone's probably pretty Because they were worth a couple hundred back then, now they're worth so a couple thousand. So basically, if you were bullish on Bitcoin, it didn't really matter that this company didn't exactly return what it was supposed well, to. Well, unlike venture investments, you might have actually received dividends throughout the journey. Yeah, and that, that's why that, it's so fascinating. That is an interesting point. We could be wrong. And, we you're, could be and wrong. you're really big on Bitcoin. I mean, you guys have been trying to do an ICO, right? We, well, we, we did an ICO. You're we didn't try an, to do an ICO. We completed our oh, you ICO. you completed your ICO. That's right. I, I talked to you guys before you had done it. So um, how big was your ICO? Our ICO was only $12 million. Mm-hmm. It was a Reg D certified ICO with a security token. So we did an actual securities offering. It's immensely more complicated than a standard ICO, but we thought it was the right way. And now we work with companies, we incubate them that are actually also on their path to building things on the blockchain. Before I bring us back to this uh, Coinbase deal really quick, is that going to become more and more of a common way to do an ICO? Because I feel like I still don't see too many ICOs pursuing that path. True. Most exclude U.S. investors yep. or domicile overseas to get around that. Yeah. So is the tide changing or are you still going to be kind of a standout there? I think there's a, there's a whole group of companies we talk with that want to do actual security offerings and they want to trade through registered ACSs, which is probably the most conservative way you can touch this entire token class. With that said, there's a lot of companies that that doesn't actually make sense for and they should find a way to get to a level of where it's not a security token. But yes, there will be way more coming. We're one of very few that have actually done it. There's exchanges coming up that actually have registered ATSs for tokens like ours to trade, but we did something very different than the standard ICO. Okay. Yeah. And Coinbase has been making a lot of hires recently. They've they've hired um, well, they hired Rachel Horowitz uh, for comms, but they also hired um, not only Balaji, but they hired someone um, from LinkedIn, Emily Choi, to do acquisitions and all that. And they also hired a CFO. So it's this is all like in the span of the past two weeks. So yeah. been, Coinbase is blowing up. Yeah, yeah. that's been the case since at least November of seventeen, when uh, volume skyrocketed and everyone began to talk quietly about how Coinbase's revenue was to the moon as the crypto. And they're generating more accounts on a daily basis than I think any other financial institution in yeah. the globe. They hit like number one in the app store and all that. But uh, have the, you invested in, in Coinbase? At all? I have not. I would love. I would love to. <laughs> can, we, can I get some stock in Coinbase? So <laughs> the last thing on this before we move on is that there's a bit of inside baseball here, which you can either view as a positive positive or negative, or just simply a fact of life. But Andreessen uh, is an active Coinbase investor at the Series B level, I think, originally, so back in 2013, and also an investor in 21Co, which became Earn.com. So when they kind of put 21 into Coinbase, mm-hmm. they ended up with more total Coinbase stock, which, to your point, was probably very attractive to it's them. It's probably great. But you know, and I love conspiracy theories. One thing I would walk away from here, though, is saying, if you were working in crypto in 2013, and you've been doing it since then, you're an expert. Because this oh, is a sure. very actually new industry, and there's very few engineers that really understand it. And if Coinbase can grab people that have deep understanding of the way Bitcoin and blockchain and ETH works, that's very valuable to them. Because honestly, they're hard, nearly impossible people to hire. Yeah, I wasn't trying to say that it was a conspiracy theory. More of a kind of a cool way that Andreessen used to get more stock Fair. in Coinbase. Fair. Like, it was financial um, jujitsu as opposed to trickery. True. Anyways, but uh, moving on to the public side of things, what is going up with Netflix? Yeah, so Netflix reported earnings this week. Um, they they their stock hit new highs after announcing that they added uh, two million U.S. subscribers, and that beat estimates. It's significant because they actually raised prices a few months ago. Um, you know, small raise in prices, but that didn't hurt 
hurt their user growth. So that was subscriber growth. So that was something that investors like. Um, they reported EPS, earnings per share, at $0.64. Cents. Uh, that was in line with estimates. Revenue was $3.7 billion versus $3.69 billion. So that's also in line with estimates. Uh, but the, the the net ads for streaming was um, 7.4 million, 7.41 million versus the 6.5 million expected. And um, and in the U.S., the net ads 1.96 million versus 1.48 million was also better than expected. So basically, the stock is moving on uh, better than expected subscriber growth. So that was that was good news for them. I mean, in general, um, Netflix has done pretty well in recent yes. months. So <laughs> they've um, done. If you just look at their stock chart over the last, like, I don't know, like I want to say, if you go back to like the, back to 2002. It's really flat for a long period of time, and then it just explodes. Yeah. Um, talk about an amazing bet they've made. I just yeah. can't believe that uh, their content costs are digestible. Yeah, but at the end of the day, they have to have the highest quality content. So right now, they got to play the game to basically buying everyone out of the market. And they have a fairly high bar on content. Like we talk to people in the studio industry that talks about things that Netflix won't buy, things that they would expect Netflix to buy that they won't. So they're definitely holding like a higher quality standard of their content. And I think that they believe as more and more people disconnect that cable line and they have that extra $30, $50, $100 a month, they're going to pump more and more of into Netflix. One thing I keep wondering about is when did they start allowing me to do in-app purchases or one-app transactions? Right, So here's a business that relies exclusively on a flat subscription fee. And if you binge on Netflix, you spend the same amount of money as a passive Netflix viewer. Right? Oh, yeah. At some point, they have to turn on in-app purchases or one-on-time purchases, which means they, allow, they need to allow me to buy movies or do day-and-date releases within theater movies. And then this thing explodes. So but then like, does that kind of devalue the idea of getting unlimited you know, for a flat fee per month? Okay. I, I thought that, but now I look at Amazon Prime. Okay, mm-hmm. so I use Amazon Prime. They have some great content. They have some great content for kids. So we stream Amazon Prime all the time. But if I want to see a movie, sometimes Amazon Prime charges me. Sometimes they need to sell me the movie, right? But Netflix doesn't, right? So there's this huge amount of revenue that Netflix have not tapped into, allowing me to do one-time purchases. I'm sure there's this religious belief of like, wow, they're, they're a subscription service. They can't, no, no, no. I'm telling you, a few of our portfolio companies have started playing with doing subscriptions with in-app purchases, with one-time purchases. It's going to work. It's going to work for Netflix, and when they do, this thing's going to this thing's going to see more growth. That's fascinating because I uh, I've finally watched I think all of Top Gear, uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of that's not on Amazon Prime. A lot of it is. So I got suckered in by the stuff that was on Prime. Mm-hmm. I had to buy all of the other seasons yeah. on like a one click basis. Yeah, and uh, I feel no guilt. I feel yeah. no guilt about that. Yeah, you're that. used to it. I've spent more on Top Gear single episodes in the last twelve months yeah. than I have on on Prime itself. That's and, right. and I feel great. And it's and it's frankly, I'd rather do it for Netflix. It's inconvenient, right? Like I have I have TV seasons I buy through iTunes. I have movies I've downloaded and want to watch through Amazon. And then I've got my Netflix subscriptions. I rather just have it all in one place, locally cached on my phone. I can watch it whenever I want. And it's okay if I have to do every once in a while an individual purchase versus on top of the subscription fee. Even more so, I would pay so much money for access to a wider array of movies. Because I really hate when I try to find something that I want to watch and it's not on Prime, I can't rent it, I can't buy it, it's not on Netflix, and I'm like, do you just want me to steal it? Because I don't, I don't want to, and I don't pirate anymore because I'm not 14. But like, you know, I just sometimes you can't <laughs> find an actual option to give someone money for the thing, and you just want to tear your hair out. So if Netflix can fix that, yeah. to the point. But um, we're going to take this from the digital to the physical, right? Because Movie Pass, which is the thing that everyone <laughs> cares about, but me. Um, Do you is, subscribe? I don't subscribe to Movie Pass. I don't like going to the theater that much. I thought this was a non. The IRL movie thing. has to be amazing for me to want to go to a theater. Yeah, yeah, it has to be like like uh, Black Panther level good. I want to okay. see that. That was yeah. fun. Okay. 
great but, play. But, but it's yeah, it's it's basically like a class pass. Well, <laughs> what whatever class pass has changed their business model a million times. But the class pass was for a fitness, and now uh, movie pass is unlimited for movies. And they keep changing their pricing, but it's been as low as like seven ninety nine per month for uh, unlimited in theater unlimited movies. in theater movies. Why wouldn't they so just let me do that at home? From a perspective, that sounds really good. But I spent like twenty bucks going to see Black Panther in IMAX, not three D, except I bought actual glasses. And MoviePass is just d- d- insanely cheap. But the thing is, there's problems afoot at the parent company of MoviePass. So now you haven't heard of this firm, but it's called Helios and Matheson. Uh, and here in the room, we had a little informal poll before, and none of us had read those words before. But they own 92% of MoviePass, and their shares today dropped between 30 and 40%. It was a complete complete massacre, frankly, because they're offering 10.5 million shares at 275 a share to, I presume, recapitalize the company. But that was nearly 30% under their Wednesday closing price, we're recording this on Thursday, of 383 So essentially, to get this um, relatively large transaction through, they had to sell the shares at a massive discount which then tanked their public worth. And uh, according to uh, Google Finance, the company that owns MoviePass is worth under $60 million. And we we must have been asleep because I didn't realize this, but that parent company, HMNY, tweeted on August 15th of 2017 that they had- Oh, amazing. Uh, And for your birthday, they announced they had just then acquired a majority stake in MoviePass. Oh, yeah. So this is almost like not quite a year old, but and then if you see the subsequent releases in in their press room, they've been buying more and more of MoviePass. So they passed the 50% mark in August on your birthday and then been adding more and more shares, which is fascinating. I, I, yeah. And they also recently we discovered bought Movie Phone uh, from, from Oath, which owns TechCrunch. And we so are, we, I, yeah, this is an Oath office I'm in right now. Um, but apparently, <laughs> apparently, this Helios and Matheson Oath is a subsidiary of Verizon. Yes, yes. It used to be Yahoo and AOL combined. For those of you who haven't kept up, they changed their name. Or if you fall asleep, that's a long because, story. Yeah. But I, anyways, Oath. <laughs> the, the, the short answer is that the reason why this is all very tough for Helios and Matheson isn't just the share sell at a lower share price. It's um, on Wednesday they disclosed that, and this is via Variety, an independent auditor had raised quote substantial doubt about their ability to operate as a going concern. Now, what that means in non-business speak is there's a chance they're about to die. Now, they did just pick up a bunch of money, so that might help their their cash position per se. But I mean, it's not looking fantastic. And we said earlier, how can they charge eight bucks a month for this? Well, the answer is maybe they can't. Maybe that doesn't work out long term. Maybe you have to charge a lot more for it. And if you do that, then is it as appealing as a product? Kind of like when Uber stopped discounting all of its rides and paying the difference, is that still as attractive as a product? You know, one thing I, I didn't understand about movie ticket sales, and I started sniffing around the studios because I just wanted to understand this, is that the studios evidently make more money when you buy the ticket closer to the release date, and then the theaters make money when you buy the ticket further from the release date. Yeah, I didn't quite realize this, but basically there's a tiered system. So if the movie just comes out and you see it opening night, the majority of the ticket revenue goes back to the studio. But if you see it like two or three months after, the majority of it goes to the actual theater. Which that, is interesting. That is interesting. I'm Actually, my first job was at William Morris in L.A. back in the day, where I learned a little bit about the movie business, but I have not kept up with it. But I was thinking, you know, how does this impact the box office? Because they all obsess over those box office numbers. And, um, I mean, this seems like it would diminish revenue, but maybe maybe not, because MoviePass is paying 
Basically, Maybe. yeah. So like, so you're paying MoviePass, and then yeah, MoviePass is buying flat, the ticket. Not if you, but if you think that MoviePass keeps changing their pricing structures, it obviously is indicative of a problem. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you guys, but I think uh, generally when I talk to people, they're going to they're going to theaters less. Right, it takes a lot more for me to go to the theater. Like when the new Star Wars came out, we went to some immersive theater and the sheets shook and all this stuff, and it was this great immersive experience. But the casual movie, I'm kind of not seeing in the theaters because there's so many other options, which I just assume will thin the amount of revenue going to these theaters. I mean, they're basically they have a model that was similar to what ClassPass was, where they are counting on you not seeing one movie a month or whatever it is to make up for this price. Right. And so they're or, hoping or, that you just subscribe right. and don't actually use it. Well, the, the other unseen number here might be the amount of money you spend when you go into that theater. Like you right. spend that popcorn. you know $12 on popcorn and sodas and suddenly maybe that's the entire margin and they're basically okay with you coming in to see the movie for free because they've got a bunch of empty seats, right? So if you're a theater well, owner, you're like, theater. look, at least we get you in there. Right. Like From a, a theater's ship. perspective, it yeah. would be good for that reason. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, MoviePass, it would be in their best interest to um, really work closely with the theaters to develop that kind of develop partnerships because um, they could make money off of, of, of popcorn and, and diet soda. What, what else is that what people get when they I go to the so. movies? I don't, get, I don't get diet soda, for one. Regular if I, if soda? I, if, I'm go, if I'm going to the you theater, just, I'm going to stick my face. You just want diabetes? Yeah. Uh, dude, if I'm, I mean, I go to the theater like once every like 48 years. And so when I go, I'm not going to go, like, you know what, I'm going to wash my waist today. Bring on that diet-ass Coke. No, <laughs> F that. I can't swear because it's equity, but like I have many thoughts about that. Bleep. <laughs> I don't like getting bleeped. I feel like I'm being in trouble. Um. Anyways, uh, moving on, Discord raised a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. And what is Discord for those of us who aren't gamers? I, mean, yeah. I, I could mention, I mean, Discord is the kind of standard and most ubiquitous chat platform, especially for gamers, typically people under the age of 20. Um, and when I talk to people, it's all about chat, but it's also all about voice. So when you're in your favorite multiplayer game, you can be talking to your friends and coordinating on your plays. Yep. And they are- 1.65 ra- billion, yeah. billion valuation. They're raising so. 50 million at a 1.65. I went to lunch, this broke, I came to the office here and I was like, what the heck? Um, but Discord has a business model. It's not a platform that has no revenue. It charges uh, up to five bucks a month for its Nitro subscription service, which is pretty cool. You get, um, according to the journal, special emojis and quote, digital perks, which we can't mock because that is how Fortnite makes all its money. And Fortnite was making 1.2 million a day recently off that. Uh, and, you know, Riot Games makes a lot of money off skins for League of Legends and all that good stuff. It's a huge part of the market. But what I love about this is I feel like here in Silicon Valley, people didn't really know that Discord was as big as it was. And so this valuation probably makes very little sense to a lot of people that weren't plugged into the gaming space. But I'm part of a Destiny 2 clan um, full of people who are actually good at the game, unlike me. And I have been roped into the uh, Discord world just for that purpose, even though on PS4 we do mostly party chat. But it's cool to see a, a non enterprise-ish company build a huge new business that has recurring revenue and make a public something. Yeah, very, very quietly that people weren't really paying attention to. I wonder if they also looked at the Telegram ICO. And they're like, oh my gosh, Telegram just raised so much money for their, you know, in essence, chat and global messaging platform. Discord can't possibly, I think, be as big as Telegram at this point. But it's certainly a good moment right now to be in the uh, the communication space. Yeah, yeah and it was Benchmark, Greylock, IVP, Spark. So they had some some big name investors here that that believe in Discord. I mean, gaming is hot, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. a, maybe it's a bet on gaming. Yeah. 
Oh, they, they raised $50 million last year from Index, um, which is just crazy. But, I mean, they probably raised this amount of money because they could. Yeah. I, doubt, I doubt they burned through the whole 50 in the last, what, 10 months or whatever can't it was. can't imagine. I can't imagine they lose that much money. So I presume they're just sitting on a pile of money, and they're probably pretty safe in case the market falls yeah, apart. Yeah, true. So according to the Wall Street Journal, they had 90 million users as of January, which is more than double the number of users it had a year before. So they're seeing strong year-over-year user growth, and maybe they believe that that's going to continue. How does Discord make money? Uh, they charge that Nitro service. So basically, a lot of people pay them five bucks a month. And this is why they're different than Skype for me, because I'm pretty sure that I would never give Skype a dollar if they put me into a vice, because uh, I didn't like Skype, and mm-hmm. I still don't. Um, but I can see myself paying for Discord, even though I barely use it right now. That well, strikes also, me as if, a very obvious If you're thing. playing these games a lot, you're getting pretty used to spending money in these games, right? <laughs> yes. Like whether you're subscribing to the game, or you're buying the skins, or buying the tools, or paying for the additional services. Like you're right. Like Skype isn't the right answer to this this problem. Discord, you know, grew up because of probably Skype's weakness. The one thing I was mentioning is, as an avid uh, League of Legends player, League of Legends just turned on voice chat. Which now I wonder whether they did that uh, preemptively, knowing that Discord was even raising this round. Because I think this just happened in the last few weeks that suddenly when you launch LOL, there's like a full audio communication bar, so suddenly you can talk to your teammates probably without going through Discord. And then the connection between LOL and Discord might actually be pretty heavy. I'm pretty curious. Uh, This is a very important question. Uh, What do you play in League of Legends? What role do you play? What role? So uh, I I think I play a strong jungler. Oh, really? But whenever I play ranked games, uh, (laughs) it determines I'm actually the worst jungler. Ah, And people like to tell me that frequently with explicits in the chat. Well, I've never even played, so I'm the worst. No. No, but I bring that up because I play ADC bot usually, but I play support rank, but I'm a Caitlyn Sona player. Mm-hmm. But I'm not very good. And so I think that if I was actually had voice chat in League of Legends, all I would do is have 14-year-olds call me very rude names. And I don't think I want that. But Discord, you can control better who you talk to. Okay. And that's maybe yeah. why I can maintain some primacy in the market that would uh, be among the question. twos and threes. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Well, there's another company that starts with a D, DocuSign. We've talked about them before. I broke the news last month that they're going public soon. And now we've gotten more information about what they could be worth. Uh, it could be worth $3.8 billion when they go public. Uh, they say that they're going to price between $24 and $26 a share. As we all know, that doesn't necessarily happen. Sometimes they price above range. Sometimes they price below range. Sometimes they change their range, but it's supposed to happen next week. Uh, it's you know the e-signature company that makes it easier to sign and share documents, and um, you know they have a lot of competition. But they've been a market leader for for a while now. So um, yeah, what do you? What I'm do you pretty. Think about? I'm pretty excited about this one. So I I was running the numbers on this this morning because I was super late to it. Uh, the midpoint valuation is the one you brought up, three point eight billion. At $26 a share, it's just under $4 billion, which is nuts. And uh, if you include the shares the company is selling, shares the insiders are selling, and also the green shoe offering for the underwriters, they could raise up to $648.8 million in this offering at $26 a share. Hmm. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. I'm not sure what they're going to do with all that money. Because the thing is, their financials are actually pretty good. Now, if yeah. you recall, when they first dropped their S1, they had none of their 2017 numbers in there. 2018 numbers. Well, fiscal, fiscal 2018. 2018 yeah. Their mm-hmm. calendar 2017. Good point, exactly. Katie. Uh, but now we've seen those numbers, mm-hmm. and the company uh, grew from $381.5 million to over $518. Mm-hmm. They started generating uh, positive operating cash flow. They cut their gap net loss in half. They mm-hmm. just look pretty darn yeah, healthy. Yeah, they do. And the reality is it's a utility, right? Like if you need to sign documents, they're going to store them for you. There does not need to be more than one of these competitors. We are working with one company in the blockchain called Sinex that I think is doing registered signatures on the blockchain. So there is a cool thing coming here. But generally, I see DocuSign requested uh, signatory pages at least once a day from one of my portfolio companies. I keep a 
complete like arsenal of documents with them. <laughs> uh, I don't want them to go anywhere. I like for them to stay around. It feels like a core utility. One question you might ask yourself is: Is this a natural place for maybe Dropbox to get involved in, yes. or Box? Like, why? Why wouldn't one of those companies like to, like to acquire these guys? This is a natural extension to what they do, and it's it's surprising they're staying separate. Actually, well, they're a little expensive to acquire to be acquired, especially for Box. Box, yeah, Box is fair enough. Um, but um, I mean, DocuSign's last reported valuation was three billion in 2015. So um, this is so they've been expensive for a while now mm-hmm. for these companies. I mean, at the time, um, Dropbox was valued at like 10 billion. Now it's worth more, but um, but it would still be a pretty hefty acquisition for those players. But I, obviously, there would be synergies. Uh, I think there could be synergies for a lot of different businesses. So sure. they could potentially yeah. make a good yeah. Microsoft being one of them. They could potentially make a, a good acquisition target, but at this point, unless there's like an App Dynamics 11th hour situation, it looks like they're, they're going to go through with it. It does. But the IPO, and this was 15 years in the making. Yeah. They were founded in 2003. So this is one of those companies that we've been wondering about that IPO for mm-hmm. a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking at their investor list, and it's so long. You've got Excel. Bain, Comcast, Dell, Google, Intel, Kleiner mm-hmm. Perkins. Like there's, there's the so roster. many. I mean, I can't yeah. even. We would be on the podcast for another like really long time. If Who's I doing read the digital whole list. escrow? Like, wouldn't you? Wouldn't it logical be logical for them to get into becoming a digital escrow service? Sure. I mean, I think like you know they're growing their their revenue a lot year over year, and um, I don't. You know, I think one of these things is you know when you're going public, you don't want to throw. You don't. You don't want to have all your ideas executed before you go public because you mm-hmm. want to save room for growth. So mm-hmm. I'm sure they have many other ideas that they will execute on. Yeah. Um, or notaries. They, need, yeah, they, they, they should have a notary service. But yeah, they need to have um, predictable growth and controlled growth. So they probably are, are trying to uh, figure out, you know, first their core business and how to improve that. My understanding is they view international markets as a good gr- hmm. growth opportunity for them right now hmm. that um, they've been expanding their core business around the world. But, but yeah, I mean, there, there are many other ways they could extend this business. Mm-hmm. Um, the but, only caveat to that is, you know, we just saw Zillow uh, which is the very popular online house look at is where you go to look at houses you can't afford in yeah. my experience. Yep. Um, they just announced they're actually going to start flipping homes using the information on their platform. But as you a didn't way. want to talk about this. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. But it, but Alex, it's, beforehand, I, I said we should talk about this, and Alex is like, I don't want to talk about I it. I know he's bringing it up. I didn't, but now I do. I'm a huge hypocrite. But the reason I bring it up is it's not core to their business, and investors right? took nine percent off their their stock value they in that one day. I, I I haven't. I just pulled this up while Katie was talking. But mm-hmm. I'm curious if they get into digital grow other things that are a bit afield from their very high margin recurring service, investors could worry that they're saying there's not enough growth left in that core vertical mm. and therefore their TAM is smaller. But here's the other difference is, is, is such a utility. Like like I understand Zillow is like a Zillow is like a beautiful shopping experience to your point, right? And they're they're generally facilitating the purchase of other homes. But DocuSign is a core utility. You're never gonna not need it if you're gonna be dealing with legal contracts. Add-on services only make it better. Like even now, I'll get documents I need to sign via DocuSign and then go through a third-party notary to notarize that I actually signed them. Oh, that's and then a need pain. to submit back to the, you know, and they need to record my signature and stuff. So there's lots of areas they can go. Um, the legal industry operates on top of this business, which is probably why they have fairly consistent, strong revenue growth. I don't oh, think yeah. it's going anywhere. Yeah, no, I think they're going to do very And they well. already partner with real estate firms. They have, uh, legal is a big category for mm-hmm. them as well, financial services, insurance, healthcare. So, um, you know, it, it depends, but uh, they, they already... Um, recognize that real estate is an opportunity. 
All right. So to take us home today, uh, one last IPO, Pearl Sight, uh, which is a bit of a confusing one. So I'm going to drop a couple of numbers here just quickly, and I'll try to keep them generic. Uh, here's what's up. So the company grew from 108 million roughly to about 132 million from 15 to 16. That was about 22% growth. Then they grew from 132 to about 167 in 2017, which was actually 26.5% growth. So critically, they accelerated their revenue growth from a higher base. Now, that's not something you usually see among companies that are going public. Usually, as their revenue grows, their percentage increase declines over time because it's harder to grow from a larger base. So it's pretty cool, right? Kind of. The company's uh, sales and marketing costs from 2016 to 2017 more than doubled to $103.5 million. And the company's revenue for all of 17 was 167 roughly. So to me, they've managed to reaccelerate growth at an incredibly high cost. And if you dig into their quarterly earnings, you keep seeing this theme over the last three to four quarters. And to me, it doesn't it's, it was surprised to see a company spend that much money on relatively modest growth. And so I'm kind of curious how we feel about this because it's not quite the model we've been seeing. Let's take a step back. So they are in Utah. They're, they're Silicon Slopes. Uh, they are ed tech. So a lot of employers often pay Pluralsight to help train their employees on software development, IT, data, security, and individuals can, can pay as well. Uh, but it is primarily an enterprise business. Um, Aaron Sconard, he's a nice guy. I've known him for a few years. Uh, he's CEO at Pluralsight. Um, and um, yeah, he's he's been kind of a leader in the Utah tech scene there. He's pretty well known. Um, he's one of the, the few Utah unicorns that, that are um, out there. And so people in Utah are pretty excited about this one. It's been one that people have been anticipating for a while. Can we, call them the NASDAQ. U- can we call them Utahnicorns? Okay, oh, okay, I take that back. I did not know it was going to be that unpopular in the room. I apologize. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's certainly an interesting company, and I'm I'm just curious about this from a pricing perspective because after the Zora IPO, I'm pretty sure the IPO window is nice and open. There's a lot of appetite out there for early stage tech shares. My question is, where do you price this thing? What's it worth? And that should tell us a lot about the enthusiasm we see in the public markets for private companies that are um, growing a little bit more slowly. And that have a higher cost uh, profile, at least right now. Well, you know, quickly browsing through their financials, this is what I see. Like they they doubled their marketing cost, and that would probably in looking at their quick you know website, it looks like they're really driven off as a subscription based service. So my guess is what you're going to see is yes, they they increased their overall revenue uh, a bit. They doubled their operational costs in certain divisions, and my guess is so it's margins because went down. Margins went down, but they're buying future revenue. So I suspect that if we were really looking at all the financials, what they'd be showing us is the net subscriber ads, and then the future 2019, 2020 base subscription revenue that's coming off the investment they're making today, and they're willing to take the losses today because they're going to spend that customer acquisition cost today, and they're really going to harvest it in the next few years. And, that- and like many startups outside of Silicon Valley, they bootstrapped for a long time. They've been around since around 2004. They didn't raise, um, according to Crunchbase, until 2013. Um, but then they got money from Insight Venture Partners, uh, Iconic, Felicis. So they they were able to get by for a while, uh, which is something we saw in, in many Utah companies and many other companies outside of Silicon Valley that weren't too reliant on venture capital. But sure enough, as soon as they get venture capital, they start spending a lot on sales and marketing, <laughs> which we see a lot. But yes, that, that will help top line, but not so line. what we're talking about here is kind of the, the core SaaS health of this company and how fast does the revenue compound because SaaS businesses, as you've said, spend a lot of money up front to buy recurring revenue and the magic comes when 
that revenue compounds over time. So what we take a lot of time to understand is each company's dollar-based net retention rate. So if you have a dollar of revenue in a year, how big will that be? And they claim a dollar-based net retention rate of 117%. So $1 revenue becomes $1.17, which sounds very, very good until you read their definition of dollar-based net retention and you realize they're not taking into account customer churn. And so to me, they are being, unless I'm misreading this, this Well, statement. here's what's odd. So this chart they have here, right? It basically shows that on their 2013 subscriber cohort, it looks like they have greater amount of billing in, two, in the 2016 timeframe than they did through 2013. So these cohorts, they're showing us from before 2013 until 2016, they're getting bigger as time going, goes on, which means that they're seeing a greater revenue out of those initially acquired customers year two and year three post-acquisition. You almost never see this. These charts are normally going the other way, which is that the cohorts are fat at the beginning and thin towards the tail. So the fact that these cohorts look thin at the beginning and getting fatter towards the tail can mean they have a really healthy subscription business. That 2016 cohort looks equally as big as it was before. No. That, no, no, that, 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 16. Well, now we're pointing at a chart you can't see. So we're, so, we're, we're, we're going to move on. But. Anyway, yeah, they, they compete with Cornerstone On Demand, Udacity, Udemy, all the companies that start with you, uh, LinkedIn Learning, um, and also General Assembly, which was recently acquired by ADECA for $413 million. So there's a lot of activity in the ed tech space. Hot. Yep. Ed and tech it, is hot. And also, you know, Venture's been loving SaaS. And this is just another reason for venture to love SaaS. And even like five, 10 years ago, you saw all these VC firms pouring money into SaaS, and now they're seeing the fruits of this labor by getting them into IPOs. Yeah, so we'll see how it prices. We'll talk more about it then, and we'll figure out uh, what it's worth. But for now, cool numbers, and we'll see how they're vetted by the public markets uh, very soon. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. Come back next week. All right, everyone. We want to say a special thanks to our producer, TechCrunch's own Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickavet. Thank you to Katie Roof. Thank you to Matthew Lindley. And thank you to you for leaving us that five-star iTunes review. That's Equity. We'll see you all next Friday. <laughs>